Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction and everything else. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks rather a lot about science. And today we have an episode that I have been really excited about for a long time. It's about food in science fiction and fantasy. So obviously some of the most memorable scenes in our favorite stories revolve around food or they're set at feasts. But meals aren't just a convenient setting or like a way to have action because food means more than just a tasty morsel in a science fiction or a fantasy story. It can actually tell us a lot about a community. It can be involved in world building. It can help us understand an alien culture or alien taboos. So we're going to dive into all of that. And we are incredibly lucky to have a very special guest, Marianne Mohanraj. She is an author of a ton of books, but most recently, she wrote A Feast of Serendib, which is a Sri Lankan American cookbook, which I am super excited to make some recipes from. She's also the author of The Stars Change, and she's published her stories everywhere from George R.R. Martin's Wild Card series. She has an essay in Roxane Gay's Unruly Bodies. She also, in her copious spare time, founded the speculative literature magazine Strange Horizons, and she's the executive director of Desilit and the Speculative Literature Foundation, and she's a professor who teaches fiction and literature at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So thank you so much for being with us, Marianne. Thanks for having me on my favorite podcast. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Thank you. Mutual yeah. admiration. Yeah. <laughs> so now let's start the show. start by talking in general about sort of tropes around food in science fiction and a little bit about kind of our favorite and least favorite ways that those tropes get deployed. One of the things that pops up a lot in sci-fi is that food kind of allows a story to do a shorthand signal that some particular group of people or group of non-human creatures is basically gross and other. They're mm -hmm. not they're not us. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is that monkey brain scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And the reason why I bring that up is it's kind of even though the people in that scene are all humans and it's not set on another world or anything like that, they're treated like aliens. And so our white characters have come to some kind of fake Asian culture and they're served monkey brains. And of course, all the white people are like, Bleh! and so we're all supposed to know as the audience that like we're in the most scary place possible because they're eating monkey brains. And then you see versions of that exact kind of thing in you know, Star Trek, where anytime Klingon food is served, all of the non-Klingons like, look like they're going to barf. And then one of my favorite examples, which is in Peter Jackson's early movie Bad Taste, where some humans infiltrate an alien society where the aliens bond by barfing in a bowl together and then drinking it, and the humans have to participate. So that's the most extreme version of this particular trope. We actually have a clip of Commander Riker having to eat disgusting Klingon food. Commander, you're not eating very much. 
not that hungry. Is the food all right, Commander? It's delicious. Pippius claw was excellent. I also enjoyed this breguet lung. And the roe keg blood pie? Delicious. Good. Then you'll also enjoy this. Isn't that goth? Very good. You did some research on our nutritional choices. Yes, but... Uh, still moving. Gras is always best when served live. Well, I mean, what I love about Riker and the Gok is that is that he likes Ga, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Gok. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but it's know, like and, wriggling and around. Gok. It's like Gah. yeah, yeah, right, right. Like, like he's told that Gok is is best served live, and then he's like, all right. Fine, these serpent worms. I'm going to be like totally on board with that. Uh, Picard also likes it, and it's such a it's such a nice change with next gen. It, it really sort of embodies the difference in how that generation of Star Trek was approaching their sort of role as ambassadors and diplomats and explorers. Right? Yeah, it's like a challenge, but then he rises to the occasion. Yeah, and I, I think you know, there's that moment in uh, Deep Space Nine, right, where Jadzia has ordered like 51 cases of gach for Martok's birthday party. But when Aww. the ship arrived, I know it's super sweet. But then she um, transitioned into Esri, and Esri uh, couldn't stand the thought of eating it. But you know, it's it's not. I thought they did a really nice job of it's not that Grach is so awful. It's that Ezri is very young and naive and has a lot to learn. And it, it, so it ends up reinforcing that instead of marking otherness. Yeah, I really think I think that that's absolutely right, that we have a lot of moments in science fiction where others are marked out by food, but then we see communities coming together through sharing food. And I think that's the, I mean, I think that's really the key here is if someone offers you gach, you know, do you take it and, and enjoy it or do you kind of make a barfy face? And that's two, those are two different choices that, that science fiction stories can make. Right. And, you know, science fiction is full of weird gross out humor, you know, especially stuff that's sort of aimed at kids. One of my favorite bits is in The Last Jedi, where Luke kind of milks that creature and then drinks the blue viscous junk directly from its teat. (laughs) There was also a thing in a recent episode of Legends of Tomorrow where John Constantine scoops up, you know, somebody's just been exploded into like a human being has just been exploded into like a pile of goop and John Constantine scoops up some of it and drinks it for so he can use it for a spell. And it's this insane gross out moment. And, you know, that kind of gross out humor is great. What's not as great is when it's used to kind of, you know, prop up a kind of xenophobic idea or basically kind of reinforce tropes around real life you know, people having food that's like weird and gross, like what Annalie mentioned with the monkey brains. I, mean, I was sort of, I had started thinking about Romulan ale and how mm. it plays out. It comes up over and over again as a marker of, you know, sophistication that, you know, Kirk drinks Romulan ale because, right. you know, it's, it, it's an advantage of being a thousand light years from Federation headquarters, even right. though it's illegal, he can get it, right? So... And then, of course, there's Deanna Troy, who shows how much she's part of the crew and is really a human, even though she's a Betazoid, by being obsessed with eating chocolate Mm -hmm. and pancakes. And, like, she's always eating these very stereotypical, like, American comfort foods. Right. Which apparently have survived far into the future, which kind of makes sense. I mean, pancakes are pretty good. Chocolate is forever. 
Chocolate. Yeah. Well, we hope. We I hope mean, chocolate is forever. It, it's part of the colonial project, so I assume we're going to bring it into space, too. <laughs> so another thing about food in science fiction, and I think especially fantasy, is that when we see people eating together or maybe making food together, it's a way of thinking about the social contract. And I think one of the places this comes up really obviously is the red wedding moment in Game of Thrones where these different groups are breaking bread together and there's a kind of implied social contract there that this is a time of peace. Like when we break bread together and we have food together, that means that you know we've put our swords aside. And then what's so horrible is – spoilers for a thing that happened long ago, of course, the guests are slaughtered. And it's this terrible moment that's made even more terrible in a show and series of books full of slaughters because it happens at a feast and it happens at the shared table. I think that kind of idea runs through a lot of fantasy scenarios. Like, again, it's a kind of shorthand for talking about what kinds of social connections we have and when we break them. And I keep thinking also about the scene at the very beginning of the anime Spirited Away where the protagonist's parents have taken her to this abandoned theme park and they start eating this magical food that we don't know how it showed up. And they eat it and eat it and eat it until they finally turn into pigs, leaving their human daughter alone with the spirits. And again, it's like there's some kind of boundary violation that's going on here, and it's being represented through this kind of crazy consumption of tasty dumplings in this case, which I've been there. Like, I never turned into a pig, luckily, but I've definitely eaten the dumplings pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, part of what's interesting about the George R. R. Martin thing in, like, The Red Wedding and so on is if you read the book, Catelyn Stark is very careful to make sure that they eat some salt and bread the moment they arrive at Fuckface's house. I can't remember his name, but I'm just calling him Fuckface, <laughs> Lord Fuckface. They, Lord Fuckface. Which we have could be, permission to do because he slaughtered people after yeah, letting no, them be guests. He's totally at his Lord table. Fuckface. Yeah. Anyway, and it's a whole thing where she's like, as long as I eat salt and bread, the moment I show up here, we're under his protection. We've got the guest right. And then he turns around and slaughters them. And George R. R. Martin in those books, is constantly showing feasts and constantly describing food. It's become like a joke at this point, the extent to which he describes food over and over and over again. And it's always kind of reinforcing these social bonds and showing how people are living. And it's kind of setting you up for the inevitable thing where they run out of food, presumably once winter arrives, and then there's none of that food anymore that he spent all this time showing you and telling you about. But it is also this kind of tradition of hospitality. And there is this thing that goes back to the myth of Persephone, but also a bunch of legends about Fae, where if you visit someone's realm and you eat their food, you have signed a bargain, basically. You've agreed to either stay in hell or stay in fairyland or work for somebody. There's like a million stories like that. And I feel like modern fantasy plays with that a lot. Well, and I think there's sort of cultural traditions, and I'm, I'm not enough of an anthropologist to be able to tell you like how much this is based in reality, but there's certainly a, I don't know, a mythos around the idea that like back in the, in the village, if someone shared salt with you, if they broke bread with you, they then couldn't hurt you, right? Like, right. And, there was, and there was also an obligation of hospitality that if someone came to your town and was needed food, you, you know, if they show up at your door, you're supposed to feed them, right? And so, and I think that sort of speaks to, you know, the village and kin ties, friendship ties a little bit, and, uh, right. and, and also precarity, right? Like if, if you're in a world where people are starving to death 
frequently, that becomes very important because maybe you're going to be the one who's wandering and showing up at somebody's door next month, right? And and, and right. food. So I think fantasy in particular draws on that, right? So we all kind of grew up with that in the background of like, that's what the medieval world was like, or that's what the old world was like. And then, you know, I think a lot of George's project with Game of Thrones was to kind of tear down the mythos and the kind of romanticized mythos of all of that. So whether you appreciate that or not, I, I think he's talked explicitly about he wanted to show that world as it as he thinks it was, right? Where people would um, right. would would make often quite brutal moves and not be held back by some veneer of civilization. Right? I, I, I have huge like problems with the word civilization. So I, anytime I say it, I put big quotes around it. So. I hear them. I, <laughs> okay. I can hear the air quotes. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think one of the ways that sci-fi and fantasy kind of take this idea to its extreme is we have a lot of scenarios where people are about to be eaten. Mm -hmm. You know, they're about to be turned into the meal so that the violation isn't just I killed you at the table, but I I ate you. Um, This came up in Star Trek Discovery when we find out that in the mirror universe they're eating Kelpians Mm -hmm. um, or they're eating parts of Kelpians, which is even somehow more disturbing because they're only Mm -hmm. eating one tiny part. And then... And then, of course, in a lot of fantasy narratives and fairy tales, you know, people are about to be eaten. Um, so you, there's that right. that confusion of like, are you food or are you a, a human? Um, which I think goes. I wonder whether part of the charge of you know the whole subgenre of erotic dragon porn, et cetera, kind of gets a little of its power from that. And I think with dragon porn, perhaps some of the charge is like, here is a creature who, in under normal circumstances, would eat you, um, but they think you're so hot that they're going to have sex with you instead, right? Like that's yeah, that's a fantasy, huh. or or both, yes. or or both, maybe. Yeah, there's definitely an erotic charge to, to being eaten, um, you know, right. and, as we've all seen in, in our copious um, internet right. <laughs> consumption. <laughs> so the other thing I was going to mention briefly is that I think food also, and we kind of touched on this earlier, where food brings people together in sci-fi and fantasy. And when we were talking about like everyone eating gach together, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's a way of showing that people have become allies. And I think we see it again a lot in fantasy. Nicola Griffith's uh, novel, Hild, which is a historical recreation. It's not really fantasy. But there's so much attention in that novel, which is about the early life of St. Hilda. And there's so much attention to how they make food on these small proto-medieval farms and you know how they make butter and how they make wool, which isn't really food, but of course it's from their animals. And so it's like this way of talking about how communities come together. Right. I mean, I love how domestic that book is, right? It's very slow paced. It very much is like, you know, as you say, like, how do you make butter? How do you like, its power comes, I think, from the minutiae of the day, right? Like, and she does it beautifully. It's one, it's a, it's a terrific novel. It also, you know, makes me think about like, when you have those teaching scenes, essentially, like when you're talking the reader through, this is essentially like, how do you make butter? Have it not be an info dump because it's also teaching something about character and the people who are there mm-hmm. and so on. But there is a reader pleasure that comes from learning, right? And so a pleasure that comes from seeing someone progress through levels. So in the same way that if you have like a magic school where someone comes in and they don't know anything and then every year they advance and they learn more spells or if it's a 
you know, fighting thing where they come in and they're clumsy and they learn how to use bow and arrow and so on. I think part of that growth of mastery in cooking and domesticity is something she does really well in that book. And it's Mm. super satisfying to the reader, right? Yeah, it is. It's really satisfying. And we're watching her learn more about her world as well as just how to, you know, make food. And that's partly her learning about, like, what are all the social relationships that allow this food to happen and allow them to sell the products that they're making because that's what they have to do. I mean, it's a kingdom, sure, but they also have to produce a product that people will pay for. And it is a child and it's a child learning how to navigate her community and then Griffiths like connects it to power, right? And to having this knowledge of people is kind of what enables Hill to survive and manipulate, right? And and be able to sort of take on power for herself in a very dangerous situation. That mastery of food and community directly enables her survival. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk all about Marianne's own work. So, Marianne, your latest book is a cookbook. It's called A Feast of Serendib, and you call it a Sri Lankan-American cookbook. So tell us a little bit about the process of putting that together and how that was different from writing a novel or writing a short story. Sure. I mean, so, it, you know, food is love. Like, I feel like I need to, like, preface with that. So, And I don't know if, ever, <laughs> I don't know if everyone feels that way, but that's certainly, like, mm-hmm. how I grew up. And, you know, when I first started writing about in food and fiction, often it was more like bad food showed that someone was mad at you, right? Like here's a wife who knows her husband is cheating on him, on her. And and so she makes him cold rice and he knows, like as he eats this, he knows that she knows and they're not talking about it. And for years he's going to suffer this, right? So so, uh, the first cookbook I wrote was actually A Taste of Serendip that I wrote like, I don't know, two decades ago, right out of college. And it was writing down what I knew of my mom's recipes and uh, what I'd been able to figure out about Sri Lankan food, mostly by like, I'd go home and she would be cooking and I'd try to write the recipe down and she would like, you know, grab a handful of stuff to try and throw into the pot. And I would like stick my hands under that and catch it and then take the seeds and measure them and then come back and put it in the pot, right? Like over and over again, because she, she Mm. she didn't measure anything, right? So I was able to write those recipes down I gave it to her as a Christmas present and I was so proud of myself. I was like, I don't know, 23 or something. And she, she started going through the book and saying, well, you got this wrong. You got this wrong. And so I, I threatened to like do a second edition with Amma's corrections in red all the way through. And she, she did, it, <laughs> it, it would have been great. She didn't go for it. So, so then I kind of left it aside for a long time, right? Like I cooked, but I wasn't planning to become a recipe writer or do a, do another cookbook. But then when I was diagnosed with breast cancer five years ago, and I'm fine now, but when I was diagnosed, I had this kind of like panicked moment of like all the things that I wasn't going to maybe get to tell my kids. And I wanted to like make videos to record. And when I finished treatment, um, I found myself obsessively cooking. And it really wasn't a decision. It was, I don't know, just like this sense of like, here is this vast amount of food knowledge, Sri Lankan food knowledge, all of this food that I love, that I grew up eating, that I didn't know how to make. And it was going to be lost in the next generation, right? And that's knowledge 
that is part of the oral tradition. It's kind of closely held, right? My, my mom would never have published her recipes because that was part of a woman's value, right? Like that was your, your, your hoard is that you're a really good cook and you're not going to tell anyone your secrets. And so she wouldn't have shared that, but there are other people who did write down recipes. And, you know, so I was, I ended up going online. I bought cookbooks. I watched YouTube videos from people in Sri Lanka, but also the diaspora in Australia and the UK. And there's been like very recently a surge of people who are starting to teach this food. And so, I don't know, I just, I got completely obsessed with it. And I mean, I know you guys get obsessed with sciencey things or whatever else at various huh. points, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's a different kind of science. And it's this, the way that Sri Lankan hoppers go with pulse symbol and CD symbol is something that has been refined over thousands of years, right? Based on like, what are the ingredients that are available in this area and how do you make them go together really, really well? And, um, so that's a, it's a very deep knowledge, uh, which I find very exciting. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I feel like it's a form of world building in a sense, or yeah. maybe maybe sort of recreating history. Yeah, no, I think that's fair, right? I mean, and I mean, if you set out to create a planet, you're thinking, okay, I want mountain ranges, I want storms, I want it's going to be good for the drama of my story if I have uh-huh. it be very cold and so on. And then you make a couple decisions, and then suddenly you realize, oh okay, that's going to now lead to all of these consequences, right? Because worlds are these interrelated systems. So right, it's literally to, an ecosystem. Right, right. So, so you, have to end up, you end up having to think about food the same way, though, right? That, you know, if I'm looking at Sri Lanka and I'm looking at a recipe and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. They're using limes. My mom used lemons. Why did she use lemons? Oh, well, she was an immigrant in Connecticut in the 1970s, and limes were not easily available. And so she adapted, and she used lemons. And that changed the food just a tiny bit. And then she adapted again. She couldn't get coconut milk. So she was using cow milk for her curries. Cow milk isn't as sweet. So she ended up starting to use ketchup, which instead of just tomato paste or tomatoes, because that added a little sweetness back in and it it brought it closer to the right balance of salt and tang and and sweetness, right? Amazing. That is amazing. It's fascinating. And so like, and there there's all kinds, you know, and of course there's once you factor in colonialism and the influences of, you know, Sri Lanka was colonized by the Portuguese and the Dutch and the British, and they brought Chinese laborers. All of that is very visible in the cuisine of the island. Um, and, and if you pick up like the classic daily news cookbook, you will have like huge sections that look like they're lifted out of a British cookbook of that era, right? Of the of say the eighteen hundreds. And even today, if you go to a, a lot of like the restaurants at the hotels, will have high tea, right? And you get the British tea sandwiches and the cucumber sandwiches and scones. And then right there along with all of that, you will have huge fried prawns with a hot sauce. So that's how you know you're in Sri Lanka. Mm, so good. <laughs> yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. Is that why your your book is subtitled uh, Sri Lankan American Cooking to reflect that specific context? Oh, yeah. It's definitely not. I mean, you know, we, we, we touched on appropriation earlier, and there's certainly... It's, it's so such a complicated topic, right? Because there's fusion, there is just playing with other people's cuisine is, I think, terrific, right? Generally, I'm all in favor of that. 
And that's how, that's how food evolves, right? And as you get access to new ingredients, as you're exposed to new techniques, you bring that back. I was making, you know, I was making maspan earlier today, which were like little beef curry buns. I'm going to be making a couple of different ones for an event on Friday. So I'm making caramelized onion buns and something else and uh, uh, probably a jackfruit and chickpea bun. And so I wanted to be able to distinguish them so they didn't all look like buns and I didn't hand a vegetarian a beef bun. So mm-hmm. I, went, I went online and I looked for different bun styles and I found one that I think is probably a Chinese style where you slice the top several times to make like a flower shape and you sprinkle sesame seeds on it. And okay, like now I have a Sri Lankan bun with a slight sesame flavor added and a very different appearance than you're used to. And I'm totally serving that on Friday and they're going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm mean, I booking I should, my plane ticket right now. Yeah, I should confess or, or acknowledge that both of us have had your food many times. It's amazing. I think the first time I met you was at WISCON, which is one of our favorite science fiction conventions. Mm-hmm. And you were having an event and you brought a bunch of food that you'd made. And you were like, here, have some food. And I was like, this is amazing. Where mm-hmm. did you get this? And you were like, I made it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, this is That's perfect. Food. food is love, right? Like, I love Wisconsin and I love the people at Wisconsin. And, how, you know, that's how I show it, though, is right, by bringing the food. I actually had a library board meeting last night. And I don't think it's typical that elected officials bring, like, homemade sweets to board meetings. But I had pushed for this thing that had required a lot of extra work on the part of staff and the board. And, you know, and they did it. And we were looking at the results yesterday. And so, like, this is like my, I don't know, my Sri Lankan female cultural training is that, you know, you show people that you appreciate them by bringing them food you've made, right? So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite parts in The Stars Change, um, your recent book, which is, a, I guess, linked short stories, mm-hmm. um, is sort of toward the climax, and this isn't really a spoiler, several of the people who've been through really difficult stuff and they're having to band together to try to rescue some people, they all sit down and have samosas together. Um, and they're, and the aunties all like make these samosas just out of nowhere. There's just this like, you know, collective, you know, we're going to all make samosas right now and we're all going to eat them. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that scene or the role that that plays in your storytelling. I mean, it's funny people, people notice that. And I think almost the most striking thing is that readers notice it because I think from my viewpoint, you know, of course you can't set off on a major quest and where you're going into danger without fuel, like food is fuel and you might have to eat first. Otherwise you're just going to be like falling over as you're running through, you know, whatever the, the area where you're trying to uh-huh. the danger. Right? Yeah, right? <laughs> uh-huh. So like any, any, I mean, there's this, there's that saying about quartermasters, right. That the army marches on its stomach. Right. So it's right. You know, right? Like, so it's, it's critical. And I think it's sort of a sad lack in adventure fiction that, in a lot of ways, food is treated very poorly. It's not, you know, all the medieval stories where, you know, what do you eat in a, you know, if you're an adventurer, you eat stew, right? Because it's it's such a cliche, you know, mm-hmm. if you were actually a medieval person of that era, you would have a wide range of things you ate. You would not be having stew on the road every single night, right? So... I think I think actually Diana Wynne Jones in her you know what is that the tough guide to fantasy land I think she mocks that a little bit I, I would love to see genre writers think this through a little bit and you know if maybe they don't know how to cook maybe they're not cook themselves but think through like in the same way that if you are writing an adventure and your characters are using horses 
you have to think about the needs of the horses and you can't actually just ride the horses for, you know, 5,000 miles without killing them. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so in, in that same way, you have to think about sort of the human bodies that your protagonists right. are, are living in and what are the needs of those bodies. And I'm not saying that we have to see every bathroom break or every use of a men- of like a menstrual hygiene product, although, you know, seeing it a little more often would probably not hurt. But, yeah, that would be good. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, but not using food is like, well, it's like skipping over the sex scenes too, I have to say. Like it is... Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a really weird lack and a missed opportunity to show how people approach this. And, you know, it lets you reveal character and it provides a place for character interactions. What I usually see in fantasy stories, like I feel like this happens a lot in Xena Warrior Princess where like she hunts or she like fishes, she catches some fish and then they we see them roasting it and eating the fish. Like, and mm-hmm. that's the thing is like, you know, part of how you know that they're tough is that they catch their food, they catch their dinner. Oh, but you know what's a really funny example of that? In um, Lois Bejold, okay, now which one is this? I can't remember. One of the later Miles Korsakin books, she has them going out and fishing on the lake, and then they're, they spend all day, they're not catching anything, and then the and then towards the end of the day, I think it's Miles who pulls out his stunner and like just stuns a bunch of fish and like oh, wow. into the boat and like you know and and he's like yeah that's what we always used to do in the end right like fishing isn't really about catching the fish it's about you know being out on the water et cetera so on and like having this this contemplative time so it was it was a, it was a really I don't know but Joel is actually really smart about this kind of stuff yeah she's she's really great she's got a good eye I think it's also true that there's like there's a kind of romanticization that happens when you have characters who are on the road and the food they eat is is simple wholesome food yeah and there's this part in um Ursula Le Guin's more recent novel The Telling that always stuck in my mind because it pissed me off where (laughs) her characters kind of are in the city And we know that the city is kind of corrupt and terrible because Mm. everyone eats food that's very highly spiced and very processed and very – It basically it just sounds like yummy food. But then out in the country, they have simple bread and cheese and fruit. And that's kind of the valorized, you know, areas like when you're having the simple food. And I was like, but I want the spicy food. (laughs) But I think that's part of that romanticizing the simpler folk kind of idea. Yeah. And I mean, I think Le Guin, she struggled with that, I think, sort of all through her life in some sense, right, as the daughter of an anthropologist. I think you do see that romanticization of the simple life a lot in her work. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's something right. that she she kind of was was constantly thinking about civilization and what what made civilization and contrasting it. And I think if you look at her work and then also Delaney in his uh, Tales of Neveryon, he has similar conversations about like the village, cooking in the village, living together in the village. And, and I think both of them are trying to interrogate it. I think Delaney does so somewhat more successfully in, on that front. Although I say this as an ardent Le Guin fan. Uh, oh, yeah, me too. Like, oh, yeah, same, no, of course. Yeah, no comp- <laughs> it's not an overarching complaint. It was more just that I was like, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure country people eat spicy food too. You know, mm-hmm. like that was what I kind of was was reacting to. Well, it is a little problematic in the same way that, like, when you look at Hunger Games, right? The way that the people of the city are portrayed as how do you know that they're bad is because that they're morally, you know, 
troubled is that they are they have a lot of attention paid to clothing and ornateness and that's a sign right. that's a sign of decadence right and that's and they, they eat a, fancy food it's like an asterisk when they go to rome and they're suddenly eating lark tongues and like you yeah. know sparrow eggs and stuff and it's like oh my god what the fuck are these people eating and then they go back to their village and it's like the feast where they're just eating roast boar all the fucking time <laughs> right <laughs> roast boar the simplest food. <laughs> well, and, I was, and there was this um, analysis I was reading about Hunger Games. And one of the things that's so interesting about that series is that certainly when I read it, I read it as a pretty liberal story. You know, here are the downtrodden kind of rising up against the wealthy and power sort of thing. But it's actually very popular among uh, a large conservative segment. And they see it as oh yeah, the people in the city are clearly the corrupt liberals, right? They're the ones who are decadent and who are indulging in all of these, you know, pleasures of the flesh. And it's the wholesome people in the countryside who are staying uh, to the true way. And I, th- I thought that was it, fascinating. I don't know that she intended that, uh, but there's a, a, a set of people who see it that way. So you mentioned before that like leaving out the food is like leaving out the sex scenes. How is writing about food similar or different from writing sex scenes? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I recently, I've been working on some essays about food and I I drafted one recently and showed it to my group for critique. And I had not yet written any of the sensory description because I was kind of, I was kind of trying to think through the ideas, right? And the ideas I was sort of struggling with a little bit in terms of family and whatever else. And people were disappointed. Like a couple of people were like, oh, Marianne, we love your sensory descriptions. And, you know, like that's one of the best things. And I had, I had to sort of say like, I actually add those later. Right. Like that's not, you know, for whatever I'm writing, whether it's a sex scene or whatever, my process, which I'm not saying this is a good process, but that's sort of the way my the way my brain works is it kind of starts out kind of intellectual. Right. And and character based. And so I, I tend to write dialogue and I don't know, people working out their issues, I guess, first in my first draft, it's a very bare bones first draft. And then the second draft is where I go in and put in a, hopefully, I try to put in a rich layer of sensory detail. So that's setting and food and the body, all of that. When you do that, it does inform and change the story, right? So you have to be open to what that might do to the piece overall, if that makes sense. You would expect that, like, it's just going to be color and it's, it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter, but it actually really does matter, right? Yeah. Is, so if I could do it all at once, I would. It's just somehow not how my brain works. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah. tell us where people can find your stuff online and offline and all that. Uh, my name, Marianne Monraj. That's my website. You can read masses of short fiction there for free. Science fiction, fancy mainstream lit, etc. Uh, Feast of Serendib will be coming out officially March 6th. Um, I'm going to be traveling all over the place. So see the Ooh. website. Yeah, like see the website for the book tour info. We are, Ben Rosenbaum and I are doing a book tour starting in Boston at ReaderCon. And we're going to be driving across the country to Chicago, hitting like, I don't know, 16 cities in the way. It's it's a little intense, um, but it's going to be really fun this summer. And then, and then we're going to hit a bunch of others. I'm going to visit a bunch of other cities between now and then as well. So Bay Area, Seattle, oh, Ooh. I don't know, lots, lots. Awesome, <laughs> lots <places>. great. So. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again. Thank you so much. Yeah. 
You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. You can support us on Patreon, which would be really nice. Um, We're there as Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much to our amazing producer, Veronica Simonetti, who's here at Women's Audio Mission, making us sound like we're not completely incoherent slobs. And (laughs) thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. Um, You can always find us on the usual places to get podcasts, on Libsyn or Apple Podcasts. And if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps people find us. And you'll be hearing from us again in two weeks. So thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.